0: We're still in Revelation chapter two, but we are on the fourth church of the seven churches in the Revelation two and three. And um, just to kind of back up and uh, give you a sense of where we've been, here's the basic outline of the book of Revelation so far. First, you see we had the prologue and introduction in chapter one, verses one to three. And then what I call the salutation statement and signature of God in Christ in verses four to eight. And then the vision, that glorious vision of the resurrected Christ in uh, Revelation chapter one, verses nine to 20, as we see him moving amongst his churches, the uh, lamp stands in the heavenly vision that uh, he gave to John. And then immediately we moved into the seven letters, to the seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And as you see, we've covered Ephesus, um, the strong but cold church. And then Smyrna, the persecuted and poor church, the church that was martyred, full of martyrs. uh, And then the letter to the church in Pergamum, This last time we were together, um, faithful but compromising. Um, all these churches exhibited different characteristics, different things for which Christ commended them, different things for which Christ criticized them. But they all come together and form a unit. Obviously, the seven letters are divided into seven uh, units. The the chapters 2 and 3 that hold the seven letters, that is a unit unit. By itself, and yet it's divided into seven. I know that's a profound statement. But what I want to talk about is, as an introduction, is that they constitute a whole. And the reason why it's important is because we're at the center of that whole this week. The seven letters, we're at the fourth letter, and I do believe that God had purpose in the way He delivered these organizationally in terms of the literary structure and that they drive us to the center and the subsets the seven relate to the whole and the whole relates to the subsets like in other words the meaning of the whole of the letters is derived by the individual meanings and applications from each letter and then each individual letter and its meaning is derived somewhat from the Total. And obviously, the seven letters make up part of a letter, a book we call the Revelation, the Apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ that was delivered to all the churches. And see, and that's important. These letters weren't segregated out. And like just these 12 verses uh, we're going to get into today, they weren't just. They, and by the way, the verses weren't added to much later. The chapters weren't added to much later. You know, it was a total literary unit. But that was delivered in total to every church. And the reason why I think it's significant, and I'm going to go back to something that I know Debbie criticized me for, for bringing up before because it was a, she thought it was confusing. So I'm going to bring it up one more time just to see if y'all can... Uh, if I can do a better job of bringing, and I know you can't read this, but you can just see the structure. This is one of the reasons why I was criticized, because you can't read it. But um, the point is there's seven letters, and it forms an X in terms of the, the outside letters bracket the next set, which brackets down to the center. So you've got like a picture frame that highlights the map, and the map highlights the photo. Well, that's where we are. We're at the photo. We're at the center. And this is a literary structure used throughout the Bible, especially in Proverbs, uh, called a chiasm. It's chiasm from the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And so you see the X structure. All right. The center verse of this portion dealing with the uh, letters to the churches is verse 23. And the reason why that's important is in the center verse, it says... I will cure children with pestilence. And notice this phrase. This is the only time this phrase is used. All the churches, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So I think one of the summary points of the resurrected Christ dealing with and among his churches is that we need to recognize that he is the one who lords over his churches. He is the one who searches the hearts and minds. He is the one who is in total authority, total control, has all knowledge, all authority to judge based on that knowledge. And he knows the hearts and minds of everyone in every church. And I think that's a powerful concept for us to consider. And, um, we'll, um, get into it a little more as we go through this text but if you think about it the the first um the first church is more bad than good and then the next church there's nothing ugly said about it at all Smyrna and then you have the same pattern repeated at the end where Philadelphia is the other church about which nothing is criticized and then you end with Laodicea which is more bad than good, so you have more bad than good, and then more good than bad, and then you have a mix of good and bad. So I've wandered around to get to this point, and that is, why would it be the central letter? Most of the time when we hear teaching on the church at Thyatira, it's based on it being an adulterous church, a corrupt church, because it's all about the woman Jezebel, And that's important. But as we'll see today, it's also full of praise and commendation uh, commendation for its good things. I think that perhaps Thyatira is the extreme blending of both a true church, a good church, and yet problems in a church. And isn't that where we all are anyway? That life, I mean, if we're genuine believers and we're in a genuine church God's at work and there's good things and there's good things for which we're praised and that we celebrate and we uh, enjoy and they're bad things and they're probably very bad and because we're sinners and so sin is manifest in our churches so I think that it is significant that Thyatira is the center tr- the center letter And that it is the blending, in my opinion, of the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And so, for that reason, I think it's very, very important and uh, very critical that we get the meaning here. Um, Okay, so let's get into it. Um, Let's read the text Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance or patient endurance that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her immorality and deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, here we are at the letter to the church of Thyatira. And we'll follow the same basic outline we've been using for the previous letters where we look at each element of the letter in the order it's presented. And and of course, the first component of that outline would be the command. Verse 18, you see the command there, it says, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. The The command is for the apostle John, the seer of the vision of the revelation of Christ, the command for him to write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And then next we see the, um, the church and its city, the elements of the uh, location there, Thyatira. And uh, that's of course in verse 18 also. Thyatira literally means castle of Thyra, of Thaya. Um It's a modern day city named Ask, Akhizar, Akhizar which means White Castle, about 100,000 people. It was located on an ancient trade route that went from Istanbul, where the land bridge between Europe and um, Asia is, down through Pergamum, Thyatira, on the way to Ephesus, a very important trade route. And we went right through the middle of a broad valley. And um, you see, there's Pergamum. Istanbul would be up above. And you see that river, the Salinas River, Is a broad valley that makes it real easy to travel from Pergamum to Thyatira. Thyatira is about halfway between Pergamum and Thyatira. Uh, I mean Thyatira is about halfway between Pergamum and Sardis, which is the next one, Uh, again on the mail route to deliver these letters. This is a picture from current day uh, Akkizar or Thyatira. You see how it's a broad plain in the middle of a valley. You can see the mountains in the distance. Well, that's good for farming and commerce and travel, but it's bad for defending. So the city changed hands many, many times, and until the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, arrived in about 190 B.C., the city changed hands many, many times. And so under Roman rule, it became successful and thrived. Here are some ruins from it. You see the modern city around it and the ruins in the middle of it from this time. Again, more ruins, just just trying to give you a mental image that this is not a story. This was a real letter to real people in a real place that had real problems, just like we do today. Um, Of note about Thyatira is it had a famous resident named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Lydia is mentioned as being from the city of Thyatira, She's in Philippi when Paul makes his second missionary journey and he comes through and she prays to receive Christ and becomes the first European convert because she's moved from Asia across land bridge over to uh, what's today Greece in Philippi. And so she was the first European convert and she's interestingly enough identified as a seller of what? Purple fabric. Well, Thyatira was famous for its commerce and manufacturing. And the biggest areas of manufacturing and commerce that it had were in textiles or fabrics and dyeing, particularly dyeing of fabrics and metalworking. But on the textiles and fabrics, it's interesting, it's real interesting to me, just a trivia thing, is how this purple, uh, this royal purple came from a seashell that was off the coast of Phoenicia or Palestine today, Uh, you've heard the city Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. Well, Tyrian purple was the royal purple of kings. And and it came, uh, a secretion from this little sea snail called a murex was used to make that purple. It was very rare, so it was very expensive. But it was also very desired because in sunlight, instead of fading, it got brighter. And so royalty wore purple. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you know, the fabric of the temple and the tabernacles that were purple. It was made from the dye of that seashell or sea snail. And, um, but it was so expensive that commoners couldn't have it. In fact, it's interesting to me, Proverbs 31, woman what color linens does she have? Purple. Anyway, but you can also get the same color from a, a plant called the matter root. And the matter root grew in plenty in this valley, in Thyatira, and so it became like an alternative to the very uh, exclusive purple from Tyre. And so they became very successful, So, and by the way, Matter root also produces other colors. And for those of you into Persian rugs or that kind of thing, you know know the bright red that you see in a lot of Turkish rugs, that's matter root. That's that's the typical matter root red. Well, another matter root you can get is purple. So that's it. But anyway, back to Revelation. Uh, Lydia was from there and Thyatira, really didn't have a significant um, political or um, religious background, but it was steeped in commerce. Commerce was the key to Thyatira. So it was a very economically successful city, but it was also a very worldly city because commerce ruled. And because of that, you had to participate in what they called guilds, trade guilds. Trade guilds were like unions. And so if you were a dyer of cloth, you had to be a member of the dyer's guild or whatever they called it. And those trade guilds had a patron god or goddess. And so their worship was all focused on the god or goddess of metalworking or dyeing or whatever it was. And if you didn't participate in that, then you were excluded. You know, it's kind of like if we were... um, all a bunch of dyers and if we were the church of the dying, uh, no pun intended, but if we were the church of the dying, then you had to participate in that church or that worship to be successful economically. Otherwise, your income suffered. Otherwise, you were excluded from the trade, excluded from the uh, business. Well, that might not sound bad on the, on the surface but of course it's a conflict for Christians and in particular because they always involved immorality, sexual immorality, orgies and sexual uh, promiscuity and sacrificing to the idol and then eating the meat in a feast sacrificed to that idol. So into that setting Christ is dictating this letter to the church at Thyatira Tyre Tyre, And he identifies himself in the self designation here, which is the next element, as the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. I think this is significant as in every letter, Christ identifies himself in a way that already presents the solution to the problem the church has. You know what I'm saying? Is that who Christ describes himself as which is usually from the vision of chapter one, that that description in itself contains the solution to the problems that the church faces. Christ is self-described here as the son of God. And although the son of God is used in the New Testament 46 times, this is the only time the phrase is used in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter one, verse 13 in the vision, John saw Christ as one like a son of man. In the vision, he's intentionally pointing back to the uh, images from the book of Daniel, the prophecies there, and it's interesting to me that the dramatic switch here from the son of man to the son of God would be purposeful in emphasizing Christ's deity, that not only is he a man like us, fully man but he is fully God and totally unlike us in that respect that he's although he's 100% man he's 100% God he is the second person of the trinity and this goes back to the covenant that God made with Daniel with uh, David in second Samuel where he said he would raise up a descendant after him who would come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him. And of course, there was an immediate reference to Solomon, but the ultimate reference is to Christ because he establishes his throne and his kingdom forever. And the father-son language is in Psalm 2 also where it says in verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as a possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware, which obviously refers to the verses toward the end of this letter. So these these allusions to Psalm 2, again, point to the fact that Christ is the Son of God. He is the sovereign Davidic King. So you see how this is painting a picture to deal with the false prophetess there and the temptation to tolerate the sin that she teaches and spreads by acknowledging that Christ is the sovereign king who rules and judges all nations and all men forever. In fact, um, as I mentioned, the center verse here, if you jump forward to verse 23, Again, it says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. How about do this? Turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I think this is significant because this clearly points to this characteristic of Christ. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. So here, through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to to his ways. Notice the next two descriptors of Christ, too, are that he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So these are penetrating eyes. You know, you think about, oh, I can't wait to get to heaven to see the eyes of Christ. You know, because we think they might be real beautiful and handsome. And they will be. I'm not trying to say they won't. But have you ever stood before your dad or your coach or your boss and you know you've messed up and you know that they know everything that you've done wrong and those eyes penetrate your very soul? Well, that's just a microcosm of what the eyes of flaming fire will do to the hearts and souls of men. The penetrating gaze of Christ sees through everything There is nothing hidden from Christ, nothing. All the thoughts and intents of the heart are seen by him. In fact, here, um, where it's referring to in verse 23, where it says that um, I searched the minds and hearts. The word for mine there is the word nephros. Um, I don't know. Does the King James have kidneys? Anybody got King James? Anyway, or it may say reins. Yeah, reins, R-E-I-N-S. Well, the word rein, what's, what's the reins on a horse? It's what we use to control the horse. Well, reins comes from the old Hebrew concept of kidneys. You know, we think of the heart being the center of passion and emotion and then the mind being center of thought and will. Well, the Hebrews saw it as the heart being the center of the mind, the thoughts and the will. and the kidneys are the gut, you know, like saying, "I feel it in my gut." The kidneys were the center of the Hebrew passions and emotions. In fact, uh, if you have renal failure failure, renal failure, that's from the same word "rain. And nef- nephrology, if you go to a nephrologist, what does he deal with? Kidneys. And then the root word used here for hearts, it says, I search the reins and the hearts. And the root word for heart is cardia, which we get cardiologists from. So all the medical terms come from the Greek, or a lot of them do. Anyway, so he is the one with eyes who can see through everything. He sees the hearts. He sees the minds. He sees the center of the passions and the emotions. In other words, the motives behind what we do. He sees the mind, the will that we want to do, the thoughts that we have that we may never share with anybody else. And his feet are like burnished bronze out of the furnace image again. They glow white hot with authority. You know, the feet of a king indicated his authority and people would fall at the feet of a king. So the feet indicate judgment and authority. So Christ has the authority. He has the power he has the vision. He has the omniscience, the all-knowing gaze of everything we are. So, is he qualified to judge? Um, there, that's the verse that we looked up, Jeremiah 17.10. So, what I want us to discuss for a moment is, how does this change, or how should it change, the way we look at judgment? We all live under the judgment of men. We all came to church thinking about how would people judge the way we looked we go to work thinking how are people going to judge the way I perform we come home and think how's my wife going to judge the way I act you see what I mean we're all under judgment of men we're also all under the judgment of Christ he is the righteous judge and he will give to each one of us according to our deeds or our works So how does this make us feel about the judgment of men and how does it make us feel about the judgment of God? And I think about how often when we're before the judge of men, the judgment of men, we say, but you didn't know what I really meant. Uh, Or at least I'm guilty of explaining a lot of stuff sometimes trying to defend myself, but none of that works with Christ. Because he knows better than I do what I really meant. And you say, well, you can't really see what my feelings are about that. Well, no, he knows better than I do what my feelings are about that. You know, why well, did it because I love you? Well, no, you did it because you loved yourself. You see what I'm saying? I mean, the convicting gaze of Christ. Is a very sobering thing, and it's a very encouraging thing because although the judgment of men may condemn us as believers in this world, and we may be ridiculed, and that's becoming more and more the case today. Christ knows. And I do think that the fact that he is all-knowing and that he is all-powerful and has all authority in judgment should motivate us to repent because we can't escape this judgment. All will appear before the judgment seat. I think that's a great point, too, is that we, need, we didn't focus so much on his judgment that we lose sight of the fact that he loves us. And that in spite of the fact that he knows all the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I'll tell you something. We all know each other pretty well. And, we're embar- and like I would be embarrassed if you could see the thoughts and intents of my heart. I think we all would. But he sees that better than I do, and yet he loves me. That's, that's, that's an amazing grace. And that's a great point, Heath. I don't mean to imply that believers will suffer condemnation for their sins. Christ has suffered that condemnation. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's a great point. But we will suffer loss, it says. You know, when that which is wood, hay, and stubble, works that were worthless because they were done for us instead of for him are burned up so that the gold, jewels, and precious stones remain. Works done by him through us. I think that I think that's a great illustration about the intimidation of the authority of God that we can't compare it to anything. I think in summation we could say what, Well, consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul said, To me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come from God. The judgment of men is very small and very meaningless. The judgment of God is everything and is eternal, and it means everything. So again, the descriptions we see here in the church the letter to the church at Thyatira about Christ being the son of God, eyes like flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. And in verse 23, the one who judges the thoughts and intents and deeds and works of every person's heart and mind. He is, he is the righteous one. And I, that's, that's the point I want to make, Eric, is that this is for verse 23. This is the only time he says, so that all the churches... And that means grace fellowship. All the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds. And I'm coming. And then if we go to the next point um, in verse 19, and we're going to start, obviously, we're going to cover this. The, the whole concept of Jezebel, we're going to, that, that'll take a lesson um, So you can tell I'm not going to get to Jezebel today. All right. Um, Verse 19. I know. Now, isn't that comforting down to back to the same thought? Christ knows. He knows. I know your deeds or your works, your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. All right. Here is commendation. Here's what I was talking about, about this church is a good church. It has good members in the church who have works, and the word works there, uh, erga, uh, for deeds, is a neutral. It's neither good nor bad by itself, but depends on context. But it's kind of like that the deeds are explained by the next items. See, the first item being deeds or works, what are they? Your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. And love is agape, that's that godlike love where the love is a mental attitude love where you love for the sake of the one being loved, not the sake of the one doing the loving. And the love is focused on the needs and the benefit of the object of the love, not the needs and the benefit of the one being, doing the loving. Uh, faith is either Faith in a noun form or faithfulness in a verb form, either way, it means the same thing. They were continuing in a faithful trust to the object of their faith, namely Christ. Service is the word from which we get deacon or diaconos, so it means ministering to the needs of others. Perseverance or patient endurance means. A patient bearing up under pressure. So they were persevering through tribulation, through trial, through difficulty. But the most important thing here that I think is very unusual is the only place. And by the way, Thyatira is the only one of all the churches where they're praised for both their love and their service. You remember Ephesus. Ephesus was a strong church, doctrinally pure, but what was wrong with it? It left its first love; it faded away from first love. So thyatira Tyre has got both going on: they're loving and they're ministering; they're faithful and they're ministering in love. But now look at this last phrase: "Your deeds are of late." Your deeds of late are greater than at first. And here again, it's works that are recent are greater than the works that you did at first. Now, when we read that, I don't know that it really strikes us how important that is, but you know, when you first come to Christ, do you remember how excited you were? Do you remember how passionate you were about the things of God, about sharing your faith and your experience with others? And do you remember getting so excited about studying the Bible growing in faith, growing in the Lord. And yet, how does that compare to where we are today? Like, you know, if I stop and do a spiritual inertia checkup, so to speak, it's very convicting. Because although I can see God's work and progress in my life, I can also see how it would be hard for me to feel like that my works of late are much greater than my works before. But yet Christ says this about this church. Do you, am I making a connection here without? I think this is a tremendous commendation, a tremendous. How many churches do you know that Christ could say, I praise you for your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, all those works you have, and that those works the works of late are better than the works you had. You're growing. You're building momentum. You're becoming, and you're not growing in number, you're growing in works. You're growing in being Christ like. Powerful, powerful condom, uh, commendation. Um, so, if, um, let me back up where I can read. All right, so how can we determine if we're growing? If our deeds of late are greater than those at first, how can we escape the threat of spiritual inertia, content with the status quo, or worse, slide back and leave the first love? And how do we test all that? Any comments on that? Like, and that's certainly what we'll be talking about next Sunday is because we're dealing with the Jezebel situation. Even if maybe we're not in need of church discipline, but we're in need of revival. And coming to Christ is the beginning. You haven't arrived. You know, like we think, well, you know, I've been saved. I've been baptized. I've got hell insurance. I'm done. You know, that's the beginning. And like you said, I don't think that's as much of a criticism for Grace Fellowship as the fact that you put your finger on it. And that is that we lack the fervency of love for others to share that faith and to genuinely invite others to receive the gospel themselves. Any other uh, comments about that? Like, but how do we practically test ourselves? How do we practically determine are we growing in Christ likeness? Our responses especially our responses to difficulties. I'll confess this, I've grown much more in difficulties than I ever have in successes. You know, the good things, I tend to get more focused on myself. In the bad times, you tend to focus more on God and God uses the struggle to make you better. And you know, one thing I think about is the football analogy. If you wanna know if you're a better team, are you blocking and tackling better? Not, are you doing the Hail Marys better, or, but prayer and Bible study? You know, are you closer to the Lord? Do you feel the intimacy with Him? Because if you don't have that, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, because then it's wood, hay, stubble. You know, you might be sharing your faith 15 times a day, but if you're doing it out of wrong motives and there's not the basis of intimacy through prayer and Bible study, it's worthless. Holiness is the goal, not happiness. Very well put, Hey, Oh, I know we got to go, but uh, thank y'all for being with us today. And let's pray and we'll be dismissed.